Sean Parker graduated with a science degree, but it was dance that became his vocation. He's an award-winning choreographer, dancer, actor and countertenor, whose work has explored a vast range of performance platforms. He's a graduate of the Victorian College of the Arts and a former member of Merrill Tankard's Australian Dance Theatre. In 2010, he founded Sean Parker & Company, becoming artistic director and a dynamic advocate for dance. The company creates critically acclaimed dance productions which are renowned for their integration of stimulating choreographic forms, arresting musical scores and theatrical invention. Their work has graced national and global stages. Parker's choreographic work includes King, Remote, In the Zone, Am I, Happy as Larry and The Yard. He is fated for his dynamic, youthful work that is so cutting-edge it actually wanders off the edge of any single-word definition. Sean Parker and company has found various ways to continue working and maintain connections with both its dancers and its audiences during this time of physical distancing. Sean is this week's guest on Stages. He elaborates on creating a dance experience online and the role he relishes. Steering an innovative dance company with a passionate commitment to education and creating work that connects with audiences to deliver strong social impact. Yeah, have a chat via Zoom, which seems to be working quite well. Have you have you been using Zoom much? I suppose you have. Yeah, lots, quite a lot, um, nationally and internationally, actually, and even regionally, in the country towns a bit as well. It's it's an extraordinary new tool, isn't it? I think um, it will become part of our lives now. I mean, certainly with this podcast, it's been able enabled me to to talk to people all over the world, as you suggest, and um, and busy people like you who <laughs> and me who might find it difficult to find time to actually catch up in person. Sure, no, it's it's very handy, and it's it is you know you can never beat a, a real life face to face, but I must admit. Zooms like this is is the second best, you know, to, to that the face to face. It's so much better even than an email in a way. So, well, we, I look forward to the next hour and chatting to you about uh, the wonderful discipline of dance, which has been, of course, one of the many casualties uh, in the arts industry uh, at the moment. The crisis around the globe, the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, which has uh, forced a pause on many artistic expressions, but. Uh, let me talk to you about dance. Dance seems to me is a discipline that's reliant on space, but you've uh, in recent times been forced to move your dance online, haven't you? How do you inhabit that space? Well, we've had a couple of projects emerge to keep not only our dancers activated, but myself activated, but also for a lot of people who are trapped at home and young dancers, um, something for them to do really easy. Um, and also we, we partnered, for example, with City of Sydney and delivered free electro-pop workshops, which were wonderful. We did them for a month. And it was about um, one of my hip-hop dancers, Libby Montilla, who does a lot of our teaching. He would teach a phrase called the electro-pop. It's quite long, but it's got all amazing dance moves from the 70s and 80s all tied together into a long phrase. And so they were classes, so people could um, join in and register. It was a youth workshop. And we did it all through Zoom. We set up a studio in his garage with a camera and bought an extra modem for, you know, for better reception and brought a banner that he hung on the back of his garage door. So he was out in, in Penrith. And so he would, you know, from his garage, 
roll out these workshops. So lots of kids would be dialing in and joining for the month and learning the dance. And the ultimate aim is that once we fully get out of ISO, later this year I want to do an electro pop flash mob so that all the people who are got to know each other on the screen will get together and do it for live, you know, uh, at a certain event somewhere around Sydney. So that's our aim for that one. So that'll be fun. Have that mm. communal experience. Yes, and the communal experience that was born from isolation. Yeah. So were the kids working uh, from their bedrooms or had they set up their own studios in garages? And um... They just opened up their laptops or computers. So they were in their bedrooms or in the lounge room with the furniture moved to the side. We choreographed the class so it would, could fit within a one metre by two metre box, you know. So it was all, there was a bit of footwork that had always returned to a central position, you know, so that it could be done contained. So that was really nice and fun and it was good to work with restriction. And so we used that restriction and made sort of, um, invented some freedom out of that restriction. Yeah, I guess circumstances can be the mother of invention sometimes, and I'm sure you've seen lots of brilliant new ways of expressing dance through that. Absolutely, and I think artists sprung into action the moment COVID happened. You'll see everyone, all the artists, musicians, dancers, actors, you name it, sprung into action online. And it, it's. I think it was this... Because artists, you know, they really want to do their work and move people and connect with people. But they also are very good in pro at problem solving. The creative mind is trained to solve many problems. And so we, you know, all the artists were the first to totally pivot. You have these corporations, big corporations taking months to pivot and the artists had already pivoted in the first week. It's a funny term, pivot. We all hate it, but, you know, if we're going <laughs> to use it, if we're going to use the term pivot, us artists, we pivoted. <laughs> the, 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 the creative minds at work. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of push for, push for the STEM subjects in, in schools, but, you know, people are saying it actually should be STEAM, just to add yeah. uh, the, the artistic expression as well. It should be STEAM. And it's artistic expression, but it's also creative process and creative thought. And in fact, the big corporations are now paying millions of dollars trying to retrain their staff to be creative. Whereas we all should be learning creative, the creative processes from the very beginning. And rote learning doesn't give you that. It teaches you to rote learn. And we don't need to rote learn anymore because knowledge is one click away on, on Google. So education, the way we teach children and all of us has to, it really has to shift because it should be about skills and about actual real skills. And I believe it needs to be more about relationships, social impact, and how to deal with life. Because you can rote learn and be a straight A student your whole life, but when you get out into the real world, do you know how to relate to people? Do you know how to problem solve real life experiences? You know, do you know how to deal with a crisis so you don't end up with a, a drug or alcohol addiction or, or mental illness or suicide or, or whatever else? And that's where... Cre uh, creativity comes in. And the theatre relies heavily on the collaborative experience, doesn't it? Also, it's just getting with a bunch yeah. of people and then and, and creating and building. And if every industry took that into their workplace, wow, imagine what we could achieve. Oh, yes, it would be quite incredible. The sense of play, because we're all children really underneath. We're, our inner child gets beaten out of us, but why not celebrate that inner child more and let it live all the way through our lives? And that sense of play 
is what I, I believe brings real magic into society and, and into working processes. I know I always, when we're having fun, we create fantastic stuff. Yeah. Embrace your Peter Pan. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm one with Peter. <laughs> you, were, you, you were developing a new work uh, called Bubble, weren't you, just as the um, pandemic hit? Yes, that's right. We were in rehearsals for Bubble. We had to cut it a week short because of the isolation, but we still had a really solid one week where we got a lot done. And we sort of knew ISO, ISO was coming, so everyone was like, let's go for it before we get blocked. Um, and Bubble's working. I'm working with an amazing Bubble artist, Mr Sue from Taipei, um, many dancers from Sydney and some vocalists. I'm working with a teenage actress who is actually the linchpin of the work, almost like it, the protagonist, the central character, who's a teenage actress, almost like a, a Greta Thunberg-type character who is becoming the universal voice for teen activism in terms of global warming. So I feel really compelled because I feel that young people are in revolt. They've had enough and they're just going to keep, you know, revolting. And, and society is in revolt as well. So I think we'll be seeing a lot more of that in the future. So what's your concept with bubble? Because when you're talking about a bubble artist, I imagine you're talking about the, the, the soapy water that then becomes the, the bubbles. And, of course, within those yeah. bubbles, I mean, there's a beautiful movement and um, choreography uh, that exists. Yes. Yes. Well, um, Master Sue, um, he is, has won several Guinness Book of Records for blowing the biggest, the most obscure, the most number of bubbles. So it's wonderful having him there. So we're creating bubble landscapes, bubble architecture with the dancers to become a metaphor for a single cell. For example, one bubble is a single cell. He's also got this bubble solution, a super bubble solution, where bubbles can stay for two weeks once he blows them so they don't pop straight away. So he's got these little devices and we play with the bubbles in different ways, you know, like that. And the, the work as well, we're working with a live steady cam operator, one of my dancers, who the, he's going to be live on stage with the steady cam live feed onto the big live feed onto the back projection. And it's very much going to be like a live documentary happening right in front of you a live play that's filmed live and projected and he's going to shoot in one continuous shot from the beginning to the end so it follows the path of one bubble and because he can get right in there on stage you know there'll be a massive massive bubble on the screen but he's following this journey of one bubble and then it transforms into more bubbles into cells into all the people come on and try to build these big sculptures and buildings. So it's sort of a, a, a look at anthropology and how men just this obsession to build, 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 build and ultimately destroy nature. And so it's about the little girl being sort of like a pseudo voice for Greta Thunberg and teen activism telling this story as all followed by the Steadicam. And the Steadicam operator is one of our dancers, so he is amazing and he's really good videographer so he will not only be an operator he'll also be a dancer and a character within the work so the the camera's eye becomes like a character as well in the work but it's very early days we've only done one or two weeks rehearsal but we're going to visit it again later in the year hopefully november december when everything opens up more fully again mm. wow that sounds awesome sean um so you yeah. can choreograph a bubble can you um, exactly what we, you want we, we can. What we do is we do, we spend hours testing 
and half of the tricks would probably be eliminated because the bubble is too unpredictable. So we then have to spend hours working out what type of bubble with what instrument and context can, and with the bodies moving around it, can be repeated over and over again. So that's why it takes a long time, but it's worth it because no one's actually done it like this before. Like I've seen Cirque du Soleil bow some bubbles or those ones at Darling Harbour which do one single bubble, you know, on a hoop. But what we're doing is is really pushing that bubble language to a whole new dramaturgical level. And the notion of having the camera there is it's like it's being analysed. We know, we know the audience is sitting there. We know that the, the performers are on stage. We know that there's a camera there. So we're playing around with that relationship. So everyone knows it's a live play documentary on stage. So it's sort of fun. And some of it's quite beautiful and um, so far, actually. Yeah. How old uh, were you when you started dancing, Sean? Um, I started reasonably late, but I grew up, was born in Mujura, um, in Victoria on the Murray River. And basically, I believe something happened to me when, um, in terms of my speech, because I had, I wasn't able to speak properly till I was seven years of age. So I had a, a series of speech impediments, very serious speech impediments. And However, my mum found me when I was about four or five watching play school and singing along with Big Ted and I was singing a song, the words perfect, perfect text sung. But when I, she would talk to me, I, there's no way I could say the words. So it was quite an interesting thing that's through my singing, I was a boy soprano. I could sing words perfectly, but I couldn't even utter them until I was about seven and then I went to a lot of had a bit of a breakthrough with some speech pathologists and and then slowly I was able to speak. And now you can't shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary, isn't it? The, the power of music to unlock something which allowed you to, to form words. Yes, absolutely. And they the theory surrounding it is that sung text is not text, it's a melody. So the formation of it is a different thought process. So when you sing, you don't think of words when you sing. You think of placement of melodies yeah. and then the, 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 the words just attach themselves to three-dimensional sounds in a way. So it's a totally different process. And, and I saw there was someone on The Voice a few years ago yeah. and he had a really bad stutter, but when he sang, he didn't stutter. And I went, oh, my gosh, he's like me. That's what I had when I was younger. You know, Look, so, there's a lot of um, treatment, music therapy with Alzheimer's patients also who have no verbal communication whatsoever but can sing songs from their childhood. And yes. It's amazing. It's a way of unlocking and stimulating again. It's quite incredible, actually. So that's how I sort of started with singing, actually, in theatre, not dance. And so because I started, I was able to sing. They then pushed me... Mum and Dad were clever enough to push me more and got me to... Dad worked at a restaurant, so I'd be popped up on top of tables and would sing for restaurant guests and stuff. Like, I just didn't even know what was happening. I'd just hop up and sing and just, oh, what's happening? I'm singing. Um, so it was quite bizarre, really. And then I they took me to acting classes because I was able to start talking a little bit. And so they took me to Mildura Little Theatre. And once again, once I became a character, I didn't stutter. 
Wow. I remember we did this whole scene about, you know, the farmer with a sausage on a stick and it was trying to trick the fox or something. I think I was about eight. I remember the drama teacher and it was improvisation and it was a story and a character and I was, could do the whole thing. Whereas I'd then go home and the stutter would be there. It's just, but when I was a character or if I was singing, the stutter would go away. Um, and then that way I basically just got into the school musicals to, in, to keep, because I loved, started loving theatre. And it was my sister, Kim, who did ballet first. And I saw, when I was 13, I saw their end of year concert and I walked out of there and I was like, oh my gosh, when I was watching the ballet, I was 13 in this country town, had never seen it before in my life, never even wanted to dance. And as I was watching the show, all these choreographies were just rolling in front of my eyes that I knew I was going to do in the future. It was really full on. You were spoken to. I was spoken. I was a vessel. But the gods of the theatre. The gods. Lord of the dance. <laughs> <laughs> it was really profound. It was ridiculous. And then we went outside and I, I just started pulling off pirouettes, which is like a spin on one foot. And um, I was just doing double pirouettes and, and my sister said, oh, my gosh, you just did a double pirouette. So she told the ballet teacher and then the ballet teacher hunted me down in Wadura and asked me to come and join, you know, because I was already able to do the spins with that no training. You know, it's just I just saw it and then copied it. The only thing that I saw just as I was starting at 13, yeah, no, there was no dance at all. It was, there was no internet. It was Mudura. You know, I lived on a... Of course. <laughs> I lived, we picked grapes and I played soccer and did karate. So, but my sister, thank goodness, she led me to the dance. But I do remember Footloose. Remember that movie? Absolutely. That you got a footloose, footloose. Yeah, no, no rock um, and roll. Yeah. Yes. And I saw that at the Mildura Cinema and I was like, I've got to dance, I've got to be that guy, whatever his name was, Tim Kevin, Robbins. Kevin, ba Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Kevin Bacon. I wanted to be Kevin Bacon. Um, and then, yeah, so that was, I remember Footloose and thinking I've got to dance and it was at the same time I just started dancing. Mm. Yeah. Who are your dance heroes now? Um, probably lots of people because, thank goodness, because of the internet, you can see the real talent that's out there. Um, I think, oh gosh, there's just hundreds of them really, because there's a lot of crumpers and street dancers that are doing phenomenal things. There's incredible parkour artists out there emerging. You can see a lot of the traditional, traditional forms on YouTube. Now you get to see so many more. So there are hundreds of beautiful dancers out there. So to say, do I have any favorites? Um, it, it, there'd be quite a, there'd be hundreds of them because they're, they're all very particularly you get to see how good they are in a particular style and how incredible they are yeah. in a way yeah. um in terms of choreography i've always loved pina bausch who's passed away now i've always loved dance theater i've always loved dance that tells a story you know it's i the, the dance has to be either incredible like amazing physically with no meaning it's just about the rhythms and the body moving that can be beautiful um but i tend to like dance theater and deviate from physical uh, physical theater lloyd newson is yeah. another one of my favorites pina bausch is a favorite hofesh Schechter, israeli uh choreographer is beautiful um crystal pite is incredible she's canadian so there's some some real lead akram khan is pretty amazing um, there are some pretty amazing people out there. Did you cop much flack at school when you started to dance? I did keep it hidden, but I did definitely get 
uh, I knew I was scared that I didn't want anyone to find out. It was Mordura and it was very homophobic. So once people found out, I had a bit of street cred because I played soccer and I'd won that year the cross country. So I had a little bit of street cred, but that wasn't enough to still, you know, get hunted down. I remember I got hunted down by these two guys. My cousin was with me, but this one guy just wanted to get me when we left the Mudra swimming pool and we ended up in a huge fight and my face was driven into the Ashfield and it was full on. But I sort of was a... It's, it's difficult because I fought, I did fight back because it was my only way of surviving. I had to fight back. So they were pretty vicious fights, but I was scared shitless. I went home scared because he didn't win by a huge amount, but it was enough to totally unhinge my confidence. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, I was yeah. having my head dragged along the, it was really, un, it really was unhinged me. And so I was living with this fear thing of when's he going to turn up again and his other friends and, you know, am I going to have to go through this again? So, yeah, it was pretty full on. And it was um, some definitely some fights at school. I think the whole poof to faggot thing being called that, it was pretty horrible. And it's very, um, you know, it's a real blow for a teenage boy to have to feel that. Feel that. So it definitely, it, it, I had a lot of fear. I lived in fear a lot, but I also fought back. So it was an interesting thing. Do you know what I mean? It was an interesting duality. But what it did do, though, is it set up a mistrust, unfortunately, for the for people in general, and that it set up a fighting instinct that to this very day I still try to undo because it's in me that you fight back. So it's still, <laughs> see, see what I mean? So it sets up patterns of survival that you fight to survive, but that doesn't always help in as you get older, you know. I grew up in a little country town in Victoria also. And um, oh. yeah, and I left when I was 17. And I, I cite that as when my life really began because I found my tribe, you know, with, with uh, other people who enjoyed the, the theatre. But um, a lot of those little country towns just have this complete dearth of any sort of cultural expression. You know, there's the football clubs, um, yeah. but no real sort of maybe a, maybe a cinema. But, but no other art forms, which I think contributes to the Neanderthals that you experience because there's no humanising yeah. uh, experience for those folk. No, there's not. It was very, particularly in the, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, which is when I was growing up there, it was, uh, and with no internet and smaller population, it was wonderful. I loved, in some ways I loved growing up there when I didn't have to deal with that. I loved the farm. I loved going on the Murray River fishing. I loved my sport. I loved my dance and swimming in the Murray River. And I loved fishing. I'd go almost every day of the school holidays. So I loved that feeling of it. And I loved my cousins and my family. It was just all the other stuff. But there's definitely some very small-minded mentality there that is so oppressive. And you're just too scared to even mention anything because you just know you'll get pounded for it. So it was... You had to be very clever in hiding things and, you know. Mm. <laughs> so was um, a professional career in dance on the uh, horizon because you left and you went off to study science at Monash Uni? Yes, correct. It, it wasn't actually because I didn't really know you could have a career in dance, to tell you the truth. Um, I sort of had some strange vision of, oh, wow, maybe I could become a dancer or something, but... 
I, all, I just didn't really know where to go. And I didn't really even know about the Australian Ballet School or Victorian College of the Arts, nothing. So I was also going through a time of I was really, well, you know, you always want to try to please your family, you know, and I knew my father would be pleased if I didn't do dance. So, and I was really good at maths and science and physics, so I was getting A plus and everything. And so because all my hormones were all over the place, we actually moved to Melbourne, to the suburbs of Melbourne, um, to Wan Turner, and there wasn't much dance culture there and I felt a bit lost and I just sort of, in the whole teenage adolescence thing, cut dance off because it felt like too much trauma and negativity around it from, you know, my father not wanting me to doing doing it. It's not cool for a boy to do it. I might get bashed in this new area. Um, every, you know, everything. And so I moved to science and I ended up going to, um, and because I was really good at it, I wanted, I think that, adolescence thing oh I'm good at something I my self-confidence was all over the place so all of a sudden I was getting a pluses on everything so I gravitated towards a bit of light and success so in a way now looking I didn't know at the time I was too young but now when I look back that's what I see and um and I went to Monash Uni and did a science degree and it was at Monash University where I was walking past a corridor in the union building and the door was ajar and I just saw these bodies dance past and I stopped and went that's dancing and I backed up and looked in. I went, oh, my gosh, there's a dance club here. And it's like everything started changing. It felt like everything started changing really quickly. You know, um, the girl ended up coming to talk to me and I said I used to dance and she lured me into the dance club. I started dancing as well as studying science and it was just a voluntary dance club, you know, at university. And she was the one who said, told me about Victorian College of the Arts and she said, you could actually... And I hadn't danced for five years, really, or actually four years. I'd stopped altogether. And so I was really raw, but she actually said to me, you could become a dancer. I said, how? Like, and then she told me about Victorian College of the Arts. And so I auditioned at the end of that year and I got in. Strangely enough, I got in. I wasn't very good, but I think they could see something in me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, I think that that is what training institutions are about, isn't it? Looking for that potential to for an artist to grow. Yes, exactly. And I think they liked the fact that I'd done a science degree and that I was coming to VCA because I really, really wanted to dance. Like, you know, and there was no mucking around whether I was going to be one of those dancers who may or, not, may, may or not like it. They could see my eyes. I've got to do this now. So I think that helped me get in as well. You yeah. uh, graduate from VCA, of course, and then work with a, a, a succession of companies, uh, amongst them Merrill Tankard's Australian Dance Theatre. Um, what do you learn about being in a company, about being a dancer? What are the skills that you garner through your time there? Well, I think VCA was really good because it's three years, you know, 10 hours a day doing classes, rehearsals and, and studies, everything. And so really long hours and building up your skills. So you get a bit of a sense of what it's like, which is really important. And then going into Merrill Tankard, it was a full-time company. It was, it was an absolute gift because I had just graduated and I got taken, Merrill just picked me out and put me in her company full-time. So we were, we were paid, it was full-time and we just learned and and 
you know, I was there for seven years with Meryl and it's every single day working with Meryl, you learn, one, your skills get better as a dancer, you become so fit, which is awesome. Um, And you just learn it from a master teacher, like Meryl Tankard is a master choreographer. And I, without even realising, every day working with her, you're learning how to become a master without even knowing because she does it through the dance. So you're not at a textbook learning about choreography, you're doing it. And you're embodying it from the dancer's body, through the mind, through her ideas. So you're part of the entire process. And, we, you know, I did it for seven years, 10 hours a day for seven years. So incredible legacy and just thought processes, ideas, creative processes, all of that stuff Meryl would pass on to us. So, and you're building up strong connections with the other dancers as well, I guess, for that that ensemble, that company to sort of you yes. sort of know exactly what how the others are moving and thinking and uh, and creating. Absolutely, and in in fact, there should be. I believe there should be more full time companies in Australia that have ensembles because I went through it, and I know how good it was. Everyone just gets better and better and better. And then, of course, I'm now have moved on many years later to form my own company. So I know for a fact I wouldn't have been able to do that unless I'd had that process with Meryl Tankard. So, you know, it's just so important for um, for there to be more full-time dance companies for the dancers. I think the freelance thing is wonderful, sure, but... <laughs> When you're a young dancer, 21 to 25, you can cope being freelance all the time. But after a while, I believe it's very hard to pay the rent. It's very hard to keep going. Whereas if you're in a company, it's really quite phenomenal what you can learn. What are the qualities of of a dancer that, that make a good dancer? I always call it the three T's, which is sort of like, and this is what I look for when I audition, is a talent first, temperament, probably actually no tenacity next. So talent first, tenacity and temperament are the three things. And I believe that if you've got a bit of a deficit in one, any one of those three, it's going to be a really hard career for you unless you can undo your patterns and become good at all three. Unfortunately, talent, it's very hard to, I believe, you've either got it or you not haven't. Yeah. You can improve your skills, don't get me wrong, but you can sort of usually tell when someone has it or not. You know, the next one, temperament, sorry, tenacity. If if you think you're already good and have already arrived, you're going to have a very limited career. And I've seen it happen over and over again with past dancers I dance with but also dancers who have joined my company and left for example um, I'm always like oh my gosh wow the tenacity it's if you don't have that it's going to be very hard for you and then there's temperament which I always put third it's really really important but I've worked with some very difficult people and I'll always make amends to bring the best out of them because I believe that sometimes Artists aren't perfect. Well, nobody's perfect, but sometimes what an artist has gone through to get there can create a tension and a sort of erratic sort of vibrancy of survival and all that sort of stuff. So I'm much more lenient for that. But there does become a point where I really try to encourage dancers to work on their temperament so that they can have their their whole career can open up because that's really, really important as well. 
you talk about um, 10 hours a day for seven years with, with Meryl Tankard. That's a lot of stress that dancers are, are placing on their bodies. I, I guess you're prone to a lot of injury or are you just super fit that you are um, devoid of any of that danger? Yes. I feel that from all of my experience, the more dance you do, if you're smart, you actually get fitter and you get less injuries, actually. It's when you stop and start is when you get them. I feel sorry for the independent freelance dancers who are around because they'll be thrown into these projects in three weeks and it'd be expected to spin on their heads, but they haven't had con continuous training. So, um, in fact, I loved working hard and you just get better and better and better at it, actually. So it's funny, it's actually the reverse. The more you do, the stronger you become and you be become better at it as well. Hmm. Were, you, were you a dancer that got to a stage in your career where you thought, okay, it's probably time to, to stop now and think about what else I'm going to do uh, with, my, with my life? Or a dancer who was forced to sort of leave performance through an injury or something? Yes. Um, I never stopped dancing because of injuries or my body. It was more my mind and I didn't want it to. I wanted to keep dancing till I was in my 50s, like they do in Europe. I wanted to keep performing as long as possible and only go into choreography when I reached my 50s. But unfortunately what happened is I'd worked with Meryl Tankard. I spent three years with Kate Champion at Force Majeure, which was wonderful. I danced with Chunky Move. I danced and sung with Meredith Monk in New York, Company Alias in Geneva, and then uh, Jan Faber in Vienna, and Sasha Waltz in Berlin, that's right. So I'd had 17 years of a really good career as a dancer. And I didn't want to go into choreography, but unfortunately with the, the last three choreographers that I worked with, I gave them 100%. I tried so hard, but at night in the studio, I gave them 100%. But when I would go home, my mind would be thinking, I, there's a different way of doing that. I think it could be like this. and Or there's a missed opportunity. They're missing this opportunity. So unfortunately, my mind was getting ahead of my body. In fact, that I want to um, start to create all of that because I was feeling disappointed that it wasn't becoming better and I knew it could become better either the concept or the choreography or the timing or the dramaturgy and I felt oh, I've got to try it myself so I sort of got sucked in to do one and then I, I sort of never really turned back really and it was because my mind went ahead of my body it had to, and I didn't want to I was 35 I wanted to keep dancing but my brain took over and I realized I wouldn't be helping choreographers if I kept working for them being half-baked and I just wouldn't do that. So it's better off I do my own thing. Yeah. You're being, being revisited by that young Sean watching his sister's dance concert who was uh, <laughs> yes. had all those visions of, of, of choreography and how to do it. Yes, they were coming back into play. In my research, I found a fabulous quote from Dance Australia magazine saying, the mind boggles at the depth of thought and intellectual process that underlies Sean Parker's complex choreography. That's pretty impressive. Is your choreography complex? You, are, you, are you a puzzle maker? Do you like solving puzzles? Yes, love puzzles. Um, I think it's a lot of my science training and I didn't even realise. Can you believe it? I didn't even realise that it would that come sense. in like this. It's all come in, yes, because just the detail, you know. Um, 
Um, I've, that's really a lovely quote. Um, we work, my dancers are incredible. I really couldn't do what I do without my dancers because they're my canvas. And I've got amazing dancers who are very conceptual and artists in their own right. And they're the ones I really draw towards. And the ones who have worked with me for eight to 10 years we'll just get on a roll and people are looking in shock. How did you come up with that so quickly? It's because we've built a shared language of precision and concept. So I really um, am honoured to have such amazing dancers and they get really good. And the ones who are op- with their minds open, they come for the ride and we just really go for it. Um, but I think as well, the research, I do a lot of research into each show, academic research. I'm a bit of a geek so all the stuff I've learned with science, but I've also learned psychology, anthropology in my own time. I just study that. So I'm a real geek. So a lot of that comes into the shows as well. I love it. I, I read an article too where you defined your favourite choreographer as Mother Nature or Etch-a-Sketch. Oh, yes. It's all That's about true. patterns and lines, isn't it? Yes. And I used to play Etch-a-Sketch for hours in Wajura, you know, because there was nothing to do there, like apart when the soccer season ended you know, or levels fishing, but you can't fish all day, you know, you do a half a day fish and then go home. But I used to love the etch sketch as well. And Mother Nature, I'm, I love, I'm, you know, hello, Mother Nature, so incredible. Everything you look at is just full of wonder, really. You're creating uh, work for different spaces, different size spaces, um, and obviously space feeds into the shape of your work. Uh, how does it influence the sculpting that you have to do for choreography, the, the different size spaces in which you work? Well, there's one particular space we did out, well, one particular show outdoors, um, which was specifically for outdoors that the London Olympics asked me to do, which was to do a show that could happen on the streets because they had millions of people wandering around. They wanted lots of pop-up performances. So I did a ballet for supermarket trolleys, which was quite fun. So I have five dancers and five supermarket trolleys and they use that sort of object that usually gets abandoned by drunk people on a Saturday night who leave it on the side of the road. And the trolleys come to life and become this full orchestral ballet. So that was using the outdoor space, which was lovely. And then in that same London Olympic Festival, they commissioned me to do a second piece, which was on playground equipment. So we performed a show called Spill, on children's playground equipment. So we had a parkour artist, hip hop artist, dance, all clambering and leaping over the swings and architecture. So the playground came to life and we ended up um, performing that in 157 playgrounds, different playgrounds in the world, that show. With, di- with different equipment, I guess, too, in each playground. Y- yes. The, the, the rule is that because we... We get the, if it's a local city council or whatever, we get on the internet or they advise us, every playground has to have at least just two swings. And then the rest of the show can be adapted to it because most of them tend to have a climbing frame, a slide, you know, there's sort of things. And so we have five different versions of the show. So we then look at the side and say, okay, for this playground we'll do version C of the show, you know, for this playground we'll do E or whatever. Um, And... So we had lots of, um, then we had some pop-up scenes. If something was difficult in one playground, we just injected a special pop-up scene in the place if a piece of equipment wasn't there. So we got really, um, we had to get very clever in how we created all the different shows. So it could go to multiple playgrounds. 
all those other design uh, elements, costume, set, the score, are really critical to telling your story effectively also. What's the collaborative process that you undertake with with those uh, contributions? Um, I work really, really collaboratively with the team. Um, I'm sort of a bit of a designer. I'd never call myself a proper designer because I don't want to take away from the amazing designers who spend their whole life doing it at all. But uh, I have sort of visions of what the world would be. For example, when we did Happy as Larry, I knew that I wanted it to be a big chalk box, like a monolith where the lead artist Larry from Happy as Larry would be the narrator and telling the story through chalk. And I just knew that I wanted a big chalk monolith. So not a normal blackboard, but something more like something biblical that people go to worship at and draw on, like the Wailing Wall. There's always these monoliths everywhere. So I wanted it to be like that. And then I also knew, I started thinking about it, that you know, that the audience is sitting there for a whole 90 minutes. I don't want them looking at one wall with people writing chalk on it. It has to move. So I wanted it to spin, to move, to be able to push it around, to divide the space. So I got to work with our production manager and a set construction person who helped us design something where the wheels could be locked in different formations so it would spin around the centre wheel. There's flaps at the end where the dancers at the end of the box disappear and slide into without the audience seeing, and they push, they actually control the box. So the box is not controlled by mechanics it's the dancers who lock off the center wheel and move it and that was really important for me so I could create a really robust work a lot of the audience were like how much did it cost to to build that (laughs) you know it must be you know machine based and I said oh well the dancers just push it inside so it was quite and it was quite central to that and I worked with the designer Adam Gardner who came in and he did costumes and set for that and he was amazing and I knew that I wanted a hyper color costume world very every day um, and I knew that I wanted uh, the spinning box and he watched rehearsals and and he, he had a vision which was we brought into the show of an arc of helium balloons that would go across the entire stage, almost like a massive sheath, an arc of balloon encompassing this world of happiness. And so he brought that and worked it into the show. So it was very collaborative but quite often I'll see... Um, uh, some sort of visual language as well. And then I tell the designer and they help me realise it, which is great. For example, Am I, where we have 1,000 analogue light globes, um, I went through, I worked with three different lighting designers talking around this idea because people kept, all the lighting designers kept pushing me for Am I to go LED and I didn't want to go LED. I didn't want that modern artificial light. I wanted analogue, pure light. And I kept talking to them about this sort of lighting braille, almost like a language that could be controlled. And and I really hit a brick wall and I, I kept holding on to this idea because I knew I could find it. And so I, I then had a discussion with Damien Cooper, who was our lighting designer, and he went, oh, actually, there's these lighting units called Jarag that you can piece together like a jigsaw and there's 50 lights in each box so you can stack them and then they become a 1,000 lights. And I went, that's the one. And I said, it's analogue. It wasn't LED. So he was able to give me the technical advice on how to realise the idea. And that was quite amazing because we then created a massive light wall with a 1,000 analogue globes that could could be controlled through the computer. So they're like pixels. So you could put um, footage into them. 
you could program each individual light if you wanted to to flash a certain way so the lighting um, wall became like a, a lighting braille a, a mode of communication as well so that was really beautiful in in mi and what about the score where do you find your music is all of, all of your works do they have a score or sometimes some? yes most of the works i've done are by nick wales who's a sydney-based violinist and electronic composer electroacoustic and he composed most of my works we had Bree Van Rijk on percussion join for Happy as Larry. She co-composed. And on my most recent work, King, I worked with Bulgarian songwriter and composer Ivo Dimchev, who also sung in the work. And he wrote all the songs and music for King, especially for that show as well, and sung live. Um, so every... But before that, pretty much every show was done by Nick Wales. Um, and then I went off on a new adventure with the lovely Ivo who originally I was going to sing in it. I was going to do that role. And as I kept developing it, I saw him and I'd been following him on Facebook and loved his work, you know, from Europe, from afar, thinking this guy's crazy. And then I was going to write the music and the songs and sing, but I just thought I came home from rehearsals and it popped up. It was like, and I knew he has to do it. And I said, oh, how am I going to get him? So I went, oh, shit. So I befriended him on Facebook. I sent him some messages just to say, listen, I'm some strange guy from Australia. And, and he said, no, no, I never work with anybody else. Never, ever. I do not wow. work with directors. And I went, oh. And I said, oh, okay. Well, I said, listen, fair enough. Well, and I said, listen, I'll just send you through a little bit of the choreography. I've done 15 minutes. Just take a look at it anyway and see what you think. And so I sent it off to him a few days later and the very next day he sent back a message saying, actually, I love it. Well, what shall we do next? You know, and I went, oh, my God, because he loved the choreography in King. So, and I went, okay, cool. So that's how it all began. And now we're best of friends and we collaborated and, yeah, he's, he's incredible. He's a phenomenal artist, Ivo. Brilliant, brilliant. Let's talk about King for, for a minute. It was a, a piece that was an exploration of masculinity, uh, toxic and what it means to be a man. There are a few dances that are created for a male ensemble yes true there's not that many around there's i mean you think of matthew born swan lake perhaps and um... oh yes that's true that's true um there are some around um it's very well i suppose when i was growing up there was three guys and 30 ballerinas that's the way it always was growing up so there was always not many guys um Contemporary dance is a bit different. It opens up more gender possibilities. Um, and the subject matter of king and male power structures and maleness really came to the fore. And it actually came out of a workshop I did at the end of 2012, believe it or not, and I got 15 male dancers. And I didn't even know I was going to make a show. I had 15 male dancers from all over Australia and New Zealand and the world, actually, couple came from overseas and we did a one-week workshop and I laughed so much that whole week because we were just working on ideas and that I thought oh my gosh I've got to do a work out of this I said men are ridiculous some of the things that you know men are awesome as well but some of the patterns of male behavior particularly those in power are ridiculous and all the Trump stuff was starting to happen you know it was starting to creep up and so it took me a few years to get funding to work on it further and because it, it's a big show with lots of people in it, I had to do it in lots of stages over five years virtually, like a little stage every year to get the money. Um, 
and all the Trump stuff was happening and I just knew I had to, everything that was happening around me was telling me it had to be about extreme power figures and also maleness but also um, sociopolitical aspects of men, how they behave with each other, how they strive for power. There's elements of tenderness. There's um, also it looks at the notion of sexuality and power and how those things can flip around also in terms of the pecking order within a group as well. You know, the smallest or the more feminine at the body, bottom and then the sort of the alpha, you know, and it's ideas we've seen before, of course, but um, because of the prevalence of seeing someone like a Trump figure who is such a sociopathic ass clown, you know, it was just I had to give a nod to that and ridicule that. It was really driving the way I the piece was being constructed. I wanted to rip apart that toxic element of of masculinity in a way. I wanted to expose it in a way. So it's sort of quite a feminist work, really. There's no women in it, nor are women mentioned at all in, in the work um, or referenced, but it is in essence quite a feminist work in a way because of the way it exposes some of the really big downfalls of masculinity. You toured the show to Lebanon and Jordan and Austria. What was the reception like to such a a visceral and muscular work there? The Middle East was a bit tricky. Um, We weren't allowed to have any nudity, so the, the King character just kept his pants on and we made more of a ritual of him taking his shoes and socks off and rolling his his pants up so that was we made a more dramaturgical sort of real pinpoint of even having bare feet like that was like you know quite an intense thing um so we took the nudity out but apart from that in the middle east everything else changed we did have to change the name in palestine and jordan um and we changed the name king to little big man so we that's what we called it there um mo- m- pretty much because in Jordan they still have a king, they're a kingdom. So the piece is about a society bringing down the king. So right. the, we felt it was a bit, we wanted to be sensitive to the local royals, you know, like so we changed the name to Little Big Man for Jordan and Palestine, you know, because we just didn't want to get arrested or, you know, cause any trouble. Um, but the people really, really loved it and they, some of them, they were shifting in their seats a little bit because there are some homoerotic moments in the work where men are questioning elements of their sexuality um, at the same time as they're trying to get power. You know, it's happening like this in the work and you could see there were some people shifting in their seats in the Middle East, but afterwards, oh, my gosh, they stood up and it clapped and the party afterwards it was really an important work to do. It was one of my proudest moments in terms of of my career, actually, in terms of really feeling an impact. Because, you know, in Sydney, two men being intimate with each other, we, we're far more used to that and it's more accepted. But in the Middle East, for them, it felt like it's carving out and exposing a whole new territory there for them. So it really was quite amazing. And that was a very proud moment. And, and Yes, and then we went across to Austria, who are very arty, and um, they loved it for a whole separate sort of reasons, you know. Um, it was really such an incredible tour to do the five countries, and it was wonderful. I loved it. 
Another powerful work you've created is The Yard, which looks at bullying. And you created it with, with a bunch of school kids. Exactly, in Western Sydney. And I started that work 10 years ago and I was just invited into the schoolyard um, in various schools around Western Sydney as part of the Catholic Diocese of Parramatta. Um, Mark Hopkins, who ran Captivate there, was very clever at bringing in real artists into schools. He wanted real working artists, the innovators, to come into the school. Um, he really wanted people who are still working and shaking the international art scene to come in. And so when he first approached me, I was like, oh, my gosh, I never do youth work. And my mind was going, no way, no way, I'm not doing this. And then just one day I think, oh, my gosh, I could actually learn something from them. Just give it a go. I just, something made me shift my mind because I was horrified at first. And I had a little bit of that young man's thing where, you know, I don't do youth work, I don't do outdoor work, even trolleys I didn't want to do, but I did it as just to test myself. And then I loved it and I've done more outdoor work. So I had to learn through experience, even though my ego was a bit like, oh, I only do serious indoor work. I soon smashed all of that open and Mark invited me in and I worked audition kids all over Western Sydney. They joined the group and over several years we made the yard and it's kept going year after year after year. And we've, we've played to over a hundred thousand students now easily across the many years. And, and I've reduced the show. It used to be 33 teenagers on stage and we toured it down the East coast, mostly to theaters and the Melbourne Arts Centre, et cetera, all down the coast. And then I redeveloped it into a show for five of my, the dancers, key dancers who are in the original group who have stayed with the project the whole time and who haven't gone on to become doctors or graphic designers or whatever they've gone on to do. Um, these, the five that I chose are still sort of in the performing arts and I reworked the dramaturgy so it was more pointed around the notion of anti-bullying. Great resource for schools uh, and as well as kids yeah. seeing some really exciting theatre. Yeah, it's really beautiful and it's, it's, um, it speaks their language. So the dancers themselves, they were originally teenagers that I created it on. So there's a really good story there. They tell, they're all dressed in school uniforms. They tell the story through all the dance forms that kids know, like tutting, breakdance, hip-hop, crumping, um, we work with basketballs and soccer balls and a BMX bike. We use all all items and objects that are found in a schoolyard. So when the kids are no words whatsoever, it's all told through a physically driven narrative. So when the school kids sit down and watch the show, the performers are speaking their language. They're seeing themselves reflected in a mirror up on stage. So it really connects with the students. And so we've had amazing feedback from the students and from the teachers for that program, which has been wonderful. Well, in a couple of weeks' time, uh, well, late June, early July, it's school holidays again, um, and Sean Parker Company are offering various uh, school holiday workshops for the kids to, um, to learn hip-hop. Yes, absolutely. Well, we've got um, some great school holiday workshops coming up. We've got Libby Montilla, who I mentioned earlier, who's teaching hip-hop for the entire, um, for a whole week from the 6th of July to the 10th of July. That's the first week of the school holidays. And so you get to work with Libby every day. It's an intensive. So you get to work from 11 
till four every day with a lunch break in there. And Libby will work through a variety of uh, pop styles, hip hop and tutting and locking and popping and everything. And then also working on a phrase as well. So that's the first week of the school holidays. Then the second week of the school holidays, we've got um, Brianna, who was also my original dance member from the yard, who has gone on to become a professional dancer as well. And she's going to teach a week long um, uh, yoga and contemporary dance intensive for that whole second week of the holidays. Um, and then after the school holidays, we've got some um, workshops rolling out um, once a week. And so we're having Samuel Beasley te teaching um, fluid hip hop, a different style of hip hop. We're having um, Shutdown, Mark Shutdown Manahan. He's that he likes his name, his crump name to be Shutdown. He's really cool. He's Australian crump champion. And he'll be teaching crump dancing, which is all that sort of um, articulated. It's like fighting and, and teasing and mocking right. people that hold through dance. It's sort of like dance don't fight that sort of thing. It's really cool. So he'll be teaching Crump in the second school holidays later in the year. And then we have Tuba in Diwali, who's my amazing dancer who's come from Zimbabwe and he's sort of teaching Pansula, which is the street dance with lots of the legs and all that sort of stuff. He's amazing. Brilliant. So that will happen later in the year. So we've got a whole series of workshops rolling out in different styles and they can all be done online. And they can also, if you're, if the studios are opening up, you can also choose to do it live in the studio with Libby. He'll be teaching while it's filmed also because we wanted to have this um, to really reach out across New South Wales regional so people in the regions can also tune in. So, and um, bookings for that is uh, through the Seymour Centre, I think. Yes, that's right. You can go online to book through the Seymour Centre in terms of those workshops, you can parents workshops. Sorry, parents can also use their Create New South Wales voucher, Creative Kids. So basically, Create New South Wales and the government have offered this one hundred dollar Creative Kids voucher, and every child in New South Wales can get it. So on the Seymour Centre, when you click on, you'll see on our In the Zone workshops, we've got a banner there that says click to use your Create New South Wales voucher. So you click on there and you basically get a whole term, um, you know, for free. You get the $100 for free. You have to register for Creative Kids, but you pretty much get it for free. So that's incredible for people in New South Wales, the Creative Kids voucher. Dance is such a, a unique expression, isn't it? Well, all arts are unique expressions. I mean, they keep you fit, but also challenge the, the brain, um, I mean, I, I, I wasn't the greatest dancer, but I loved it. You know, I think I had two left feet, but it was always a great challenge to go into a studio and try and replicate what the teacher was doing. Yeah, it, it feels good. And I'm, I'm sort of, I'm always very eager to try to, to encourage all people to dance, not because it's cool or you look good, but just because it feels good. It's something so beautiful about it. It's the same as singing. And there's a lot of choirs springing up again because people have realised in our digital age that they want to connect and they want to dance with people more like at a, at a tribe. Like when we were in tribes, we, everyone would create music, dance around the campfire. We've always been as humans wanting to experience this, this essence. And it's quite often told, you know, through 
through the music and the dance and these tribal elements and community. And that's what we're missing in these individualised societies, particularly when there's a lot of apartments, when people are living in boxes and apartments yep. and you sort of go off to work. When are we crossing over? Where's our communal spaces? And I think people are really, really want that again, more of that. It sounds like uh, the Sean Parker company keeps you very busy, but tell me, how do you restore yourself when you need to clear your mind or wind down? How do you do that? I live near Coogee. So I love going down to Coogee beach and running along the beach and going up the Coogee steps. It's really hard. They've got around the corner built into the rocks. You think you've reached the top of the steps, but it keeps going and going and it's really good. And then I'll go and do push-ups and swim. So I love going down to the water actually. And sometimes I'll go there really late at night. There's the swimming pool there at South Coogee and there's a lamp that shines on it at night. So you can actually go for night swims in the pool and it's, it's safe because it's not the open sea. It's got a border of rocks. So you're safe in there. You're not going to drown and, and we'll be eaten by shark. a shark. <laughs> not exactly. And uh, night swims are incredible. So I've often gone down with friends for night swims as well. I love going for night swimming. And apart from that, I love going to see films. One of my favourite things is going to dinner and then going to see an art house film. Like I see, I love film so much. I'm, I'm obsessed with it. Um, that's sort of how I wind down is beach, food and film. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me. Sounds pretty good to me. Food is definitely my friend. Oh, yes, yes. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, thank you for uh, the, the last um, hour. It's been a fascinating conversation. Um, I'm especially looking forward to Bubble when you, uh, when you complete that. I think that sounds very yeah. exciting. It'll be fun. We're aiming that one for the end of next year. So pretty much September-ish 2021, we'll have that finished. And then before that, we've got In The Zone, which is our newest work. We did a a small se a test season of it at Camden last year. And this September, we're doing it at the Seymour Centre. So we'll definitely get you a opening night ticket. And, and they're pretty sure the theatre is going to be open by mid-September. Like even if it's spread out, you know, only 100 people allowed, or they're slowly opening up. So that one we're very excited about. And that features Libby Montilla as a solo hip-hop dancer. And he's using um, gaming controls using remote controls for gaming to create music, which were designed by um, Alon Ilzar. So we're collaborating with him. So that's a very good fun show. And we're gonna be filming that live stream as well, our first time. That way we, we're going to be able to offer that, um, f people who come to the show in Sydney will come to the show paying tickets as, as per normal. But the live stream, we're going to do a special offer for everyone in New South Wales in the regional small towns where they can do live stream for free. That's going to be part of our promotion to really start building some connection to the regionals, regions as well as the big cities. Brilliant. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, great. Thank you very much. That school holiday program sounds like a lot of fun and you can find out more about the workshops and indeed the company at seanparker.com. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday and occasionally there's a bonus episode dropped in for good measure. 
I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends, and your enthusiasm is much appreciated. But you couldn't go one step further, could you? Could you take a moment to rate the podcast and leave a short review? You can do this through the podcast iTunes app, where you probably access this episode. It helps to get the series promoted and received. Until next time, I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well, and I'll catch you next time.